You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children, who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. That's key. He became their savior. And all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then in the Holy Gospel according to Matthew, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would do more than my mouth can do today and that you would make preaching this easy and you would make hearing this message a delight and that when it's over, we will know, not just in our mind, but in our soul, that there isn't a level of darkness we could fall to that doesn't already have your presence in it. In your name we pray, amen. If you notice, our culture celebrates an event prior to the event. The day of the event is the culminating celebration, and then we're hungover after the event. Hungover, use your imagination, I mean it in all the ways possible, that you could possibly have thought that I meant that. We celebrate leading up to Easter, and then Easter celebration. We celebrate leading up to Christmas, and then Christmas comes. We celebrate leading up to our birthday, and then the birthday. We celebrate leading up to a wedding, and then the wedding. We celebrate leading up to things, And in the church, it literally is the opposite. We celebrate from the day that it happens, and we then continue the celebration past. So we are in what's called Christmas tide, or the after party, if you will. We are still in the Christmas season, and after Easter, there's about five weeks where we're still in Easter, and then the day of Pentecost, and there's five weeks where we're still in Pentecost. And so I actually think both are very important. I don't think we need to choose one over the other. I think it's important to celebrate leading up to an event, because I think preparation is important. I also think that it's important to celebrate after the event because implication is important. So it's important to celebrate up to an event because you should be preparing for it. It's important to celebrate after an event because the implications of the event are important. And I laugh because I thought to myself, do we really celebrate the implications of things like New Year's resolutions? We celebrate that we're going to have them all December, which is really an excuse to live terribly because we're going to start living right in January. Then buy stock in Planet Fitness on, on December 31st 
because it is going to skyrocket, but then sell them stocks in February because nobody's going anymore. Or maybe they're still paying for it and not going, which is wonderful stewardship of our finances. We celebrate leading up to a resolution, but we don't celebrate the implications of it so well. We celebrate living up to a birthday. I'm not sure how good all of us are living, at living into our new age afterwards. Has anybody ever told you you act like you're four? When you're clearly not? I'm like, if I'm four, would I be able to walk away from you right now and restrain myself? Probably not. So I'm walking away from you, Jacqueline, because I'm not four. I'm six. (laughs) Do we really celebrate the implications of everything that comes after we get married? We celebrate the heck out of the wedding day. I remember coming home from the honeymoon, standing at the bottom of four flights of stairs in the apartment we lived in, and Jacqueline's like, you're going to carry me, right? (laughs) I don't even want to carry the luggage. Carry her up the stairs. She's laughing at me. My mom's up there waiting for us. I'm like, this is not what's supposed to happen. But she had a huge tray of lasagna, so it was all good. Mom, come right on in. We love celebrating the event, and sometimes we celebrate the event so hard that we want to mask the fact that we don't know how to live into the event after it's had. And the church calendar helps us not only prepare for an event, but celebrate the implications of it. And the problem with Christmas, if we want to be biblical about it, is that really Christmas is sentiment-covered threat. Because our king comes to us on Christmas, and he's not on a throne He's in a pig trough. And he's not being paraded around. He's being threatened. And he's not being accepted. There's no room for him at the inn. And the way that Jesus saves us, manger, cross, tomb, the way he saves us also shows us what he's saving us for. It shows us the kind of kingdom that we're supposed to be living in. A kingdom that exercises its power through humility and weakness, not coercion and intimidation. The color on the cross today is gold. Somebody say out loud the three gifts that were brought to Jesus by the wise men. Say it together. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love the fact that gold is brought first because gold is usually the color that the church puts in the sanctuary when you're celebrating Christ the King Day because gold is a kingly color. But the wise men bring gold to a manger because like spirit-filled Christians, we should be able to see more in something than it can see in itself. That is a Christian spirit-filled trait, is to be able to look at something that seems so insignificant or failing or broken or falling apart and see for it more than it's currently capable of seeing for itself. And so the wise men bring gold because they're not looking at a baby in a manger. They're looking at a king who's going to grow up. We need to be able to see gold in the rubble of people's lives. We need to not always just live pointing out the rubble. We need to live showing them that under that rubble is something priceless. I so badly want to just stay on that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress. The next thing they brought was frankincense. Frankincense is the number one 
tool, item that's used for incense in most Orthodox churches. And if you read through the book of Revelation carefully, incense is not some pagan reality. Incense is the thing that goes up into heaven in the book of Revelation when we pray. Our prayers turn into fragrance before the Father. One of the prayers that I pray on a regular basis is, God, help my prayer smell good to you because I know it stinks. That's what I say all the time. I'm not very good at this. I'm going to try to say words to you. My prayer life is me telling God what it's like to be me at any given moment. And when I'm done doing that, I say, Lord, please turn what I just did into incense. Somehow make that smell good to you. And they brought incense to Jesus. Why? Because he is going to be the great intercessor of our faith. The Bible says that he never ceases to make intercession for us, but they saw that in a baby. They saw that in an infant. They saw a king in an infant, in a manger, in a pig trough, in a cave, already rejected, already his life is threatened, and they see a king and they bring him gold long before anybody else can see that. They see intercession and they bring him frankincense long before he can even speak a word. He's not even able to make a sound yet, and yet they're already saying every sound this baby makes is intercession to his father. And then they bring him myrrh which is burial ointment. They saw that coming too. Burial ointment, not just burial ointment, but myrrh is the kind of burial ointment that was used to say, Lord, they've gone to be with you, but you're going to raise them at the last day. And they'd put myrrh on the body. If you fast forward to the Easter story, Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb to bring spices. One of those spices is going to be myrrh. Why? Because she wants to anoint Jesus' body for the day of resurrection. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, afterwards, Mary pours ointment on Jesus' feet. The ointment that she poured on his feet was myrrh. Why? Because she said to herself, He just raised somebody now. I don't need this burial ointment anymore. We don't need to save it. There's going to be resurrection. This is all really cool, but the wise men saw it in a manger. So ask ourselves, are we the kind of people who wait until somebody fulfills their potential to affirm them? Or are we the kind of people who in somebody else's distress and failure can call out the gold? Can bathe them in prayer and frankincense? And can even prepare them with myrrh for their failures to be to to overcome their failures. It's so funny how good we're doing, how good, well we do this in our country with sports, and how poorly we do it with our families, children, and friends. We look at people who've overcome great odds in sports, or you know, I don't even know who the Knicks are anymore. I was trying to name somebody right now. It's like this Triple A baseball team version of a basketball team. But one of them, R.J. Barrett. He, he goes 0 for 14, and what are we waiting for? We're watching it because we know. You know, you can go 0 for 14, but if you hit that game-winning shot, it's like you went 15 for 15. We're good at that in sports, but we're terrible with people. When somebody fails, we capitalize on it. When somebody fails, it makes us feel better. When somebody fails, you know, we, we, we say things to each other like, hey, we should pray for so-and-so because they're really failing, but it's kind of a way just to tell other people that my failures aren't as bad as their failures, and so we cloak it in prayer. That's not what Christmas says to do. Christmas says that until we're secure, 
we will never be able to call out the gold in somebody else's life. It takes security in ourselves to live to point out the good and the affirmable in other people. That is the calling of the church, though. The calling of the church is to see new creation in the life of the world where they can't see it for themselves. And we have a long, not illustrious history of judging the daylights out of people who don't come here and trying really hard to affirm ourselves when really we should be judging ourselves and affirming the world who's not here. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's why Jesus never flipped a table at a prostitute's house, but he did at Salem Tabernacle. I assume you all agree with me. Look what happens. Well, let me say this. So, so Christmas has a way of pointing out our ego a little bit because when Christmas settles in, it's so beautiful and it's so perfect and it's so wonderful that it can also show where all the weaknesses are in a family. Like, did you raise your hand if you went to somebody's house for Christmas and left with a whole bunch of presents? And let's, raise your hand if you left maybe like after 5 o'clock in the evening or 8 o'clock. How much fun was it loading up the car and bringing a mess home to your house? Everyone got along real well after that? It has a funny way of showing us where, where we're a little weak, when we're tired, when we've eaten too much, when we've had a little bit to drink. All of a sudden, now we got to pack stuff up, we got to bring it home, and now the house is a mess again. we got to do it. If I step on one more tiny little frozen doll, I'm going to melt them. I'm going to melt frozen somehow. Somebody got Sophia an animal that repeats back what it hears you say in a high-pitched voice. You're in this room, and I'm judging you. I yelled at her. I'm like, Sophia, you need to get back in bed. And I hear, Sophia, you need to get. I'm like, this is not going to happen. Christmas has a way of showing us where we're weak. I'm going to break that toy. That is not a cool thing to get somebody. The person who got it for is actually not here, but Angini, it was Brett. <laughs> Brett got it for her on purpose. Where are we? Sophia, on Christmas morning, I creep into her room because, again, I'm more excited than she is. And I get down by her little, little toddler bed this high, and I'm like, Sophia, the cookies are gone. She's asleep. I'm like, poof. <laughs> oh, you're awake. Sophia, the cookies are gone. She's like, oh, you know, when kids rub their eyes, just, just before they stop being cute, like they're still kind of asleep and they're adorable. And like their, their cuteness is about to go away when they wake up. But they rub, she rubs her eyes, she goes, she goes, the cookies are gone? I said, yeah. Santa ate them. She goes, What? I'm like, what? She's like, did he leave any for me? I said, no, he ate them all. Because Santa ate all the cookies, including the crumbs, because sometimes Santa basically almost eats a plate by accident. She starts crying on Christmas morning. And it made me laugh because I thought of myself, and I thought, I want to be generous so long as I know that there will be something left for me after I'm generous. And then I wondered if that's really actually generosity. This morning, I'm leaving the house to come here, and Sophia 
hands me another little robotic toy, and she says, uh, Mommy said the screws are too small in here. Does Ian have a screwdriver for it? <laughs> and I said, I'll take it to Ian. And she goes, I'll sit right here and wait. And she sits on the stairs. So I go start the car. I come back in. She goes, well? And I said, I didn't go to church yet, Sophia. I'll come back. And she said, can you sit on the steps here with me for a little while? Listen, I don't care. For her whole life, if she ever asked me to sit with her, I'm going to sit with her. Because I don't know how often she's going to be asking me to do that. So for now, I'm going to sit with her. If I'm late to church, if I'm not here one day, it's because I'm still sitting with Sophia someplace. And I sat down, and she goes, she puts her head on my chest, and she goes, Daddy. And I'm like, this is what winning feels like. And she goes, Mommy said I can't watch a show. Can you put one on for me? It was a proud moment because she's turning out to be a lot like me, which is wonderful. And then I had a thought to myself then, too. I'm like, how often do I cozy up to God hoping that the end result of this coziness is me getting something I want that I know I'm probably not supposed to have? The gospel according to Sophia. Christmas has a way of leaning in on our weaknesses and showing us what's great, but also showing us what needs work. And... So do your kids, for that matter. And in both of those moments, I realize I need a savior. I need someone to save me from this ego. I need someone to save me from this. But there's a problem. When we read in the Isaiah text, the minute it says that God became their savior, he's delivering them from slavery under Pharaoh, he delivers them out of slavery, and the minute they're no longer oppressed, they don't want a savior anymore. They only want a savior until they can live the life they want to live, and then they don't want one anymore. Look what it says in Exodus 20. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the Ten Commandments begin. But before he says, here are the rules to follow, he says, just so you know, before I give you any rules to follow, I'm the God who saved you. So even if you follow every single one of them and get it right, you're still the kind of person who needed to get saved. Years later, the rich young ruler will come to Jesus and say, hey, I followed all the commandments. And Jesus lists them, and he says, I followed them. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, and then you can follow me. Why? Because Jesus realizes this guy has been so obedient, he doesn't think he needs a savior anymore. But the minute we think that we can live and not have to look like somebody who needed to get saved is the minute our ego blossoms completely out of control. We will always be, on our best day, the kinds of people who needed salvation. And this has to help us on both ends. The fact that we needed salvation and got it before we asked for it shows us that we don't follow the rules for love. We follow the rules from love. So anyone who tells us that if we don't follow rules, God will love us less is lying and preaching a perverted gospel. Love came first so that I'm free to try and follow and fail and learn and grow. And if you ever wanted to know, well, is that really the life of God, learning and growing, learning and growing? Maybe this is why he showed up as an infant to show us what growing is really supposed to look like. There is no part of human existence that wasn't touched by the life of God from conception to death. Because all of it, the God life is showing us in the person of Jesus. But then, 
But then we also have to know when we fail that we've already been saved and not beat the daylights. Daylights is my new word because I feel vulgar today for some reason. I don't know why. I have no idea. Maybe it's because today's the last Giants game of the season and they've done so well. (laughs) And then they start winning when they should lose. Terrible. Anyway, when we make mistakes, we weren't supposed to follow the rules anyway. Before there was ever a rule, there was a God who was saying, before there was ever a thing to follow, which means before there was ever a thing to disobey, which means before there was ever a thing to say that you failed, there was a God who's saying, I've already delivered you. You're already delivered from the mistake you're going to make. Do we treat people when they fail us like we serve a God who's already delivered them? That's what the manger says, though. The manger says you don't point out flaw, you point out humility. You don't point out weakness, you point out salvation. The manger is getting all the way to the very bottom of what it means to be humble and saying, I got so under you that there is no mistake that I haven't touched and I'm pulling it all up. Do that for each other. And the church has been the worst at it, and we should be the absolute best at it. That's why I'm talking with my hands and gripping this microphone. Like, if I dropped it, we'd all die. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing. I've lived the majority of my life debating and arguing and not loving and listening. Herod is... The exaggerated, full version of what it looks like when we live as if we don't need to be saved. And I'll just put it simply. He kills innocence. It starts with the Israelites where there's just this little thought. Now that we've been delivered from Egypt, I think we got this. When that thought goes unchecked, It grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it becomes a king who thinks the way to execute power is through violence and intimidation and coercion. And that is the epitome of what insecurity looks like. Intimidation is somebody who's not secure. Yelling and screaming and confronting. Uh, I had somebody recently tell me, I'm not confrontational, I just won't roll over. I'm like, come here. That's what it means to be confrontational. Power unchecked ends up destroying innocence to save itself. That's the exaggerated version. Most of us are hopefully somewhere way on this side, but it can get there. We know people where it's gotten there. There's abuse. You know people who've been in an abusive relationship. You may have been in an abusive relationship. You know what this is. And it's funny that when Egypt, when Israel gets out of Egypt and they get alone and they're finally free, they're so broken by being in an abusive relationship that they want to go back to it. Because Abusive relationships provide for you to stay so that they can keep abusing. And what did the Israelites say? 
Moses, we're going to die here. We might as well at least die back in Egypt where we had food. I want to go back to the abusive relationship because at least I was taken better care of. That's what abuse does to somebody. That's what we're all capable of doing to somebody if we live like we don't need salvation. We should approach every person before we even begin to confront anything about them, realizing that we needed to be saved ourselves first. And then once I know that I'm in as need of salvation as the person I'm about to confront or tweet about or post about or anything else about, how does my language, my posture, my countenance, my body language, how does it all change when I realize I need as much salvation as the person I'm about to confront? And God gave it to me without asking any questions. And now I'm going to hold them over the coals. No. So what does this look like? My, my brother-in-law, David, uh, on Christmas, he's studying to be an engineer. I'm going to say all these things the wrong way, David. Just they're so much smarter than I am. Uh, John, David, like I go, to, I go to the Demetrius house and they start talking and I'm like, what is everybody talking about? But I've gotten better at listening. So I'm like, wow, wow, yeah, no, yeah, wow, yeah, you know, yeah, particles, yeah, no, that makes sense, yeah, like. No idea what they're talking about half the time. We're talking about what it, how, how you build a bridge, and David said something interesting. He said, when they're going to build a bridge, they keep digging until they find bedrock. And he said that there are things that look like it can secure the bridge, but you have to keep digging until you like can't dig anymore, and then that thing is the bedrock. And it, I thought of that this morning. I, I went for a walk this morning, and I thought of that and realized in order to get to security, you actually have to pass through insecurity. You can't get to security until you pass through all the things that aren't secure. So we'll say as a slogan and a punchline, I'm secure in Christ. I'm not secure in my finances. I'm not secure in my education. I'm not secure in my children. I'm not secure with the things I have or don't have. I'm secure in Christ. But if it's only a slogan, it's only not a slogan. It's only real life if we have been willing to pass through our insecurities to get to the bedrock himself. If I don't acknowledge my insecurities, if I don't name them, say them, make them known, which means being vulnerable, which makes you insecure, if we don't say those things, if we're not honest about those things, we will never get to the bedrock. The bedrock always exists under everything that's not bedrock. You have to drill down past it. Where you want to grab superficial security when the manger and the cross and the tomb are drills that drill way down deeper into our insecurities because none of us want a king who lies in a pig trough. None of us want a king whose marquee moment of victory is dying on a cross. Why? Because it makes us have to go through all of our fears, all of our insecurities, and it asks us why we're not willing to give all the cookies and have none left for me. Thank you, Sophia, again. Jesus said, here's a plate of cookies, and the cookies are my life. I'm going to give you all of them until there's nothing left. He gave all the cookies. So, I like to make these lists, so here we go. Take a picture of it when it's done. Praise the Lord. The children. 
Surface security or manger depth? Here we go. Surface security is found in wanting to have personal freedom where manger depth is found in radical trust. Personal freedom is superficial. Radical trust is digging down into the bedrock. How in the world can you say personal freedom is superficial? Here's how I can say it. Because if anybody actually got real personal freedom, the people around you would have to be enslaved in order for you to have it. Because if I really had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, I wouldn't be able to do that unless somebody else who also wanted to do what they really wanted to do decided not to do what they wanted to do so I could. Like if three of us are hungry and there's one slice of pizza left, we all can't have personal freedom. Talk about me eating too much again. If there was only one slice of pizza left, it's not. It's because there's three of you and me stuffed falling asleep in the background for eating the other seven of them. You cannot have personal freedom unless it's at the expense of somebody else's. We really want people to understand where we have a bad day, we snap, we say something we shouldn't have said, and immediately we want that person to know, you don't know the kind of day I've been having. In other words, let me step all over you, let me have all my space. I'm not even going to ask about the day you're having, because if I do, and I find that it was as bad as mine, then I can't say, I only said that because I'm having a bad day, because you are too. I want to have personal freedom, which means you can't have any, which means I've turned into Pharaoh and Herod. I'm killing the innocence of your personal freedom. But radical trust, radical trust is giving up my freedoms so that other people can have them. That's why Paul would say, outdo one another in showing honor. What does that mean? You have the one slice. No, you have the one slice. No, you have the one slice. Have you ever been in one of those annoying conversations where everybody argues over who's going to pay the check? Guess what kind of argument I've never gotten into. (laughs) I'll pay. No, I'll pay. Cool. I will have the Kalamar, please, then. Another surface security is self-sufficiency versus humility. This sense that we can be sufficient on our own is a superficial security because God, Emmanuel, God with us, was born as an infant who could not take care of himself. What is God saying as he's revealing in the infant, in the baby Jesus, God is revealing to us what God's life looks like, what the perfect life looks like, and the perfect life looks like a life that needs others. Well, God has no needs. That makes it even more powerful. What God is saying is, I have no needs, and yet I still lived as one who had needs, which means even if you have no needs, you should still need help. Because help shouldn't be the product of not having sufficiency. Help should be the product of relationship. You've heard me say this before about Jesus carrying his cross. Jesus did not need help carrying his cross. Jesus could have carried his cross on his own. Simon carried his cross for him. Because Jesus is revealing to us that needing help is the best way to live, even if you don't need help. But here's the secret. I'll tell you. You all need help. I need help. Bad. A lot of help. Are you clapping because I need help? Did the clapping just get louder? Whatever. 
Self-sufficiency kills the innocence of the credibility of other people because you'll never be thankful. Listen, let's say I actually thought this morning, I got up, I got dressed, I got ready, Jacqueline's been sick, I got Sophia breakfast, I did it all on my own. Let's just say for a second I was actually delusional enough to think I did it all on my own. I put on a shirt I didn't sew, I put on pants I didn't make, I got in a car I didn't make, I drove on roads that I didn't pave. There is nothing about my day that wasn't in inundated with the help of other people that I'll never even know. When I think I'm self-sufficient in a world where so much of what I do in a day, I did not get water to come through the pipes that came through the faucet to wash all of my hair. I'd, I didn't do any of that. If I literally think I'm self-sufficient, I am killing the credibility of others and I'm living a non-thankful life and I'm destroying people. Humility. Humility. Another superficial security is achievement. (laughs) Achievement as opposed to the deeper reality of growth and maturity. Here's what I'm not saying before everybody gets mad at me. I'm not saying we shouldn't achieve things. I'm just saying that we shouldn't strive for achievement as the source of our security because we will actually get achievement at a rate that is faster than our maturity to be able to live into it well. You got people, you got young people who just dying to get married. I just really want to get married. I really, I just, all I want to do is get married. And they're like 18. And you're like, you know what? Fine, get married. Watch, watch, watch. There was a generation of people who got married that young. I got married at 27. There is no way on God's green earth I would be married right now if I got married at 18. I would have been like, she would, Jacqueline would have been like, hey, take out the garbage. I'd be like, I'm in the fourth quarter in Madden. Hold on, it's close. Like, We want promotion, but we don't want to wait for the character that can handle the promotion well. Because every achievement involves people who are now under you because of your achievement. And if you don't have the character or the ability to handle the responsibility that comes with the achievement, you will crush other people. Because achievement weighs a lot. And we need a character that can support the weight of achievement. So I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for achievement. I'm saying that we should, and I know, I think this is a verse somewhere, somebody help me, we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and we spend so much time seeking all these things, hoping the kingdom of God is added to us when we need to be seeking the kingdom of God, trusting that achievement will be added to me at the rate that I can handle it as a person. There's a reason why. Everyone, most people in this room told me I was supposed to be a pastor. You should be a pastor by now. You should be a pastor by now. Go plant a church. Go. You know why? You know why God held me back? Everyone was telling me how great I am at being a pastor, and the reason why I wasn't one yet is because you were all wrong. Because the weight of this could not be put on somebody that had the maturity level that I was walking around with. Waiting and delay and God not giving you something right away is merely his chance to forgive you the flex and the muscle that you're going to need to handle it when it comes. And can I flex? Can I flex my muscle for you real fast? Here's my flex. Here's what I know now. I got the job and I know and here's how I know I can handle it because I know I can't handle it. Like I said before. I need help. And you all clapped for me rudely when I said it. When I said I need help, you all clapped. But the reality is, if I got this 10 years ago, I wouldn't have needed help. I'd have had this. I got this one. Nope. All that happened was I got to the point where I realized I could stand in the strength it takes to say, this is going to be an us thing. 
My marriage is going to be an us thing. Parenting is going to be an us thing. Pastoring is going to be an us thing. Every achievement we have is going to be achievement we have together because we can only handle it together. When achievement becomes the thing that we can't live without, it will kill us. But when we can wait to develop the right character, we can handle achievement. Two more. Surface security. No one does this. This is for other people. Controlling outcomes. Versus faith, hope, and love. There's so much to say about this. This could be its own series. So I'm just going to say one thing about it. Controlling outcomes. When you can't rest until there is resolve in a situation. Let's just put it that way. When you can't not pick the phone up. When you can't not check Facebook. When you're enslaved to needing to see what other people are saying, thinking, or feeling. And please, my family is in the room right now. I am talking about myself first. This is, this is my Achilles heel right now. I need to know what somebody's thinking, especially somebody who's being critical. I need to know that I said the right thing that got them. I need to know that I was influential. I need to know that I changed their mind. And when I can't, it disrupts my sleep. It disrupts my appetite. It gets me all kinds of crazy. I need to know. But here's the problem. When we control, when we think it's our responsibility to change reality, which we call it changing somebody else's mind, but it's the thought that I could change reality. When I can't rest until I can change reality, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy anybody's ability to have a beautiful imagination. Why? Because I'll always be telling them what the truth is about them and never leave the truth about them open to the possibilities that God has for them. If I'm always saying, if you do this and you do this, then God will do this. Here's how we live that neat little packaged life. What happens is you have American Christianity, which has set up all of these. American Christianity has basically become a pharaoh that has enslaved God. Because American Christianity says if you say the right things and think the right things and do the right things and claim the right things, then God will have no choice but to give you what you want. Tell that to enough people, you're, about to, you're bound to meet somebody who lost somebody close to them. Well, I did the right things. And then they're going to start to think, maybe I did the wrong things. And we've created this world where there's no more need to think. If it went well, I did right. If it went wrong, I did wrong. And there's no more imagination about the possibilities and the depths. When Paul says in Romans, oh, the depths and riches of God, his ways are unimaginable, unimaginable. his works are inscrutable or untraceable. That is a man who's free to imagine, who looks at a situation that seems final and says, but you know what, with God, even the things that seem the most final might not be done yet. You've heard me say before, The only thing open to change in my life is my future. My past is done. But in a God who's omnipresent, he's still in my yesterday. And that means my past is as open to possibility as my future is. And I don't have the eloquence or the intellect to flesh that all the way out. But here's what I know. If he's omnipresent, then I need to have an imagination for what I've done in the past that God can undo or what I have failed to do in the past that God can still do. But if somebody tells me it's done because I either obeyed or disobeyed, you're going to crush my imagination. 
This is why when Peter, James, and John said, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus took a kid and said, unless you become like a child, your brain will outreason the existence of the kingdom of God. But Sophia can imagine all kinds of ridiculous possibilities. Here's her exact words today. I want to sit on the stairs. Why? Because I'm wearing penguin pajamas. How is that a reason for wanting to do anything? For her it was, because she has an imagination that's better than mine. I'm, too, I'm, I'm grown up enough to know that that's ridiculous. She's young enough to realize, no, it's not. Unless you become like a child. We have to cultivate imagination in people's lives. We have to have an imagination that goes beyond our behavior. Thank you. Thank you. We have to have an imagination that goes beyond our behavior. I think it went well because I succeeded. I think it went bad because I failed. Both are wrong. It went good because God and what you feel like went bad, God is still in it and it's still open to possibility. You just need to pray. You just need to have faith. And those things sound like, Pastor, you were about to give us a really good answer, and then you said pray and have faith. Yeah, I said something ridiculous, like I want to sit here because I'm in penguin pajamas. But if we have the heart of a child, pray and trust means something. If we're an adult, it means absolutely nothing. So I'll say it again. We have to hope and pray. Paul said it this morning. Joy, peace, faith, hope, love. These are the punchlines of the Christian faith. And to whatever extent they don't excite us, we're too grown up. Now, keep in mind, he said to be childlike, not childish, and there's a difference. Whole nother sermon. And finally, finally, moral leverage is a surface security, and humble service is deep. Moral leverage. A lot of examples to give, flipping pages in my mind. One would be any time we've ever said we were about to tell somebody else what they did wrong, and before we tell them what they did wrong, we say something we did right. I've been working all day, and I come home and, or I've cleaned this room so many times and picked up your shoes, Bill. Just random thoughts, making them up. Whenever we, or like we said before, you don't know the day I had. Whenever we preface a criticism with what we've done right, all we're doing is using our right as leverage, which means our right had nothing to do with service. It had nothing to do with love. The minute I use the good I do for my family to shut them up in an argument, the good I did had nothing to do with love. It was to pave the way for me to capitalize on it when it's most advantageous for me. Don't look at me like I'm the only one. What did Randall used to say? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> I remember when the whole thing broke with Tiger Woods and they put all of his text messages in the newspaper. Like 40 women that he was having an affair with. Like it wasn't like, hey, I messed up that one night. There was like a lot of women and it came out and it was just so unbelievably disappointing because he's a hero and then this whole thing comes out and then my man has a press conference, which is one of the most honest and vulnerable things I've ever seen somebody caught do. He has a press conference and standing there behind a podium, is this going to buzz at me? Standing there behind a podium, he says, do you, are there any questions? <laughs> Somebody says, why'd you do it? There's a good one. 
And he said this. I'll tell you exactly why. I gave up my life to play golf. I didn't do things that everybody else got to do. I worked harder than most people, and I thought I deserved it. I want to say that in the moment of saying that, redemption began, because that is one honest thing to say out loud into a camera. But that, we've all been there. Maybe not so extreme, but we've all been there, where I've worked so hard. Let, let, me, let me get a pound of flesh out of you. Don't criticize me for being rude today because I worked hard. We use moral leverage as a way of either getting something we want or excusing something we shouldn't have done. (laughs) I'll say this until I retire. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, is the only one in history who could have ever said, I worked so hard and you did this to me. He could have held that basket up and said, guys, this is my body broken because of you. And he's the only one who could have said, I cleaned the house so many times. I mowed the lawn so many times. I worked 70 hours this week, then came home and did the lawn, and this is the food I get. Like He's the only one who could have said those things. And he stands there on the night when he was doubted, denied, and betrayed and said, this is my body, broken for, for, not because of, for. He had all the moral leverage and used none of it and said the word for. The word because and the word for change everything. This, I'm hurt because of you. I'm offended because of you. I didn't get that promotion because of you. I can't focus on my job because of you. We haven't been intimate with each other because of you. We haven't had fun together because of you. We haven't dated each other in a long time. We've just been married because of you. I don't have the children I want because of you. I don't have the job I want because of you. We could say because of all day long. The only one who could have ever said because said for. This is my body broken for. We don't want to serve a king like that because that means we need to live in a kingdom like that, which means we need to live like that. I don't want my God in a manger. I don't want my God telling people, this is my body broken for you. I want him getting at them. I Look at the last text I have. This is what I want. This is why everybody should be happy. I'm not Jesus. Watch this. Matthew 26. He's about to be arrested, and he says, Then Jesus said to him, Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? I'd have called on them right away. The minute somebody plucked my face, like they put a blindfold on them, the minute they put a blindfold on me, I would have been like, angels, now, get them. Get them, get them. Like immediately, instantaneously. How many of you remember Mike Tyson's punch out for Nintendo? Back in the day? Remember you used to get the star punch? I'd use it right away every single time. I wouldn't wait. I would have used that star punch right away. And Jesus says, 
Jesus says, I have the power to move beings you don't even know about. And I'm not going to. Because having power and not using it is what power actually looks like. If he couldn't call on angels, then he's lying. And that verse means nothing. But when you have power, and you can use it to be self-advantageous, and you don't, it takes more muscles to not use the comment we have that's the best comment to make, the punchline, or quite literally, the tanks and guns and bombs. Put your comment back in its place, Peter. Put your gun back in its place, Peter. Put your fists back in its place, Peter. Don't you think I could call on my father and he would send me guns and tanks and bombs and artillery and military and we could shut this down right now? Those are the things most of us root for. And those are the things that Jesus is saying, have them, but don't use them. Because power looks like being able to destroy somebody and then not. That's what real power looks like. Why do we want to flex? Because we're afraid of death. And not literal death. We're afraid of the death of our ego. I need to know that I could have won it. I need to know I could change her mind. I need to know that I could... This is where rape, this is where abuse, this is where it all comes from. It comes from somebody saying, I need to know I can. Herod had no room for a no. You say no to Herod, he kills your kids. Jesus said that our mouth is a greater weapon than any of the artillery on the earth. How many people, how much innocence have we destroyed with a comment because there's no place in us to show restraint because we're insecure. It's not because we don't have patience. The most egotistical person in the world has enough patience to get what they want. They just don't have enough patience for you to get what you want. I'm going to say that again. That was pretty good. We all have patience. Most of us have patience to wait for what we want, but we don't have patience to wait for what somebody else wants. But the manger says we can. At the bottom of our insecurity, our feelings of, of guilt, of shame, of disappointment, at the bottom of all the medicating we do on so many levels just to escape feeling reality, at the bottom of all of it, Jesus is waiting to show you that you're strong enough to get through all the insecurities to the bedrock. He wants you to be strong enough to be mad at him. It takes strength to be mad at God. He wants you to be strong enough to be upset about life. He wants you to be strong enough to not think it was fair. He wants you to be strong enough to grieve. I love the phrase where it says, Rachel, a voice was heard in Rama, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. I love this. She refused to be comforted. The last thing I'm going to say before we come to the table is this. We have been so weak as a church that we've told people you're not allowed to grieve. I actually have somebody who's very close to this church. They don't go here, but they're a very close part of this church. And they said to me, you know, 
I lost somebody close to me, and God finally delivered me from the grief. And I, I felt bad for them for saying that. Because there, you don't get delivered from grief. Rachel refused to be comforted. Because God's not done with death yet. And until he's done with it, I'm going to be grieved. And the church has told people, you're not allowed to be mad at God. You're not allowed to grieve. You're not allowed to feel convicted. You are. It's part of, it takes strength to say, you know what? This is why Jesus, and I've said this before, but these are some of my go-tos. Like, these are my go-to plays that get a first down every time. Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb knowing he's going to raise him from the dead, and he weeps at the tomb knowing he's going to raise him. And the reality there is that what God is saying is, even though I know that this death is going to be abolished, when it exists, I'm going to weep. Because weeping is the right thing to do. Refusing to be comforted, it takes strength to refuse to be comforted. We have ripped people up for feeling sorrow. We have ripped people up for feeling grief. We've told them that it's a sign of weakness. It's worship. It's strength. And we need to be the kind of people like Job's friends before they open their dumb mouths and just get around and and feel it with people, right? Weep with those who and rejoice with those who at the same time. It takes strength to celebrate a birth over here and grieve a death over here. But that's the kind of bandwidth a king in a manger can give you. Right now, I'm saying it as somebody who right now, my my strength is I can weep with those who weep because right now I'm not grieving. But listen to me, the day may come where I am and I'm going to need you to just not remind me of this moment, but just weep with me. Pastor, I remember one time you said, no, no, just sit here and feel what I'm feeling with me for a little while. That's what we're called to do, Salem. I don't want to be a large church. I don't want to be a big church. I want to be a church that can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and remind people that before you ever made a good or a bad choice, you were saved and forgiven and redeemed. And I want us to walk around looking like people who need to be saved. I don't want us putting on airs. You know the word personality comes from the word mask. It's a Greek word for mask, persona. I don't want us to have masks on. I want us to walk around showing scars like Jesus did, saying, listen, I need to be saved every day of my life. And the kind of meekness and humility that will flow out of that, the world needs. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times in our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.